and welcome to Planet Watch, Earth-sized solutions to planet-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, the future of your favorite foods, coffee, chocolate, and vanilla. Can you live without them? No? Well, you'll find out in just a moment why that's important. Will they be around in 40 years? We'll talk with Patricia Rain, the vanilla queen, about the status of these crops and the ecosystems that give rise to them. We have a podcast. Uh, you can uh, subscribe at our still fairly new website, planetwatchradio.com. That's all one word, planetwatchradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with us or ask our guest a question, write to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. We're also streaming live on Facebook. So if you want to see what we look like and see Joe's blue shirt and the four, count them, four Planet Watch pens in his pocket. And the vanilla treats that we're eating, courtesy of our guest. <laughs> Which is unfair for you to have to see that uh, when you can't eat it. I hate to yourself. eat it in front of people. Yeah, you're breaking one of those manners <laughs> rules, I think. But first, a look at the top stories in science this week. Let's start out with Maya Rodriguez, one of our interns from Cabrillo College's journalism program. A new study indicates that the atmosphere is not the only source of the Earth's nitrogen. Researchers at the University of California, Davis, found that up to 26% of the nitrogen in natural ecosystems is sourced from the Earth's bedrock. For years, scientists had recognized that more nitrogen appeared in soils and plants than the atmosphere could provide alone, but the source of this extra nitrogen was unknown. Researchers suggest that this discovery could greatly improve climate change projections because the nitrogen may allow forests and grasslands to sequester more carbon dioxide than previously thought. Scientists say that this discovery could completely change further research on nitrogen and their understanding of the carbon cycle. Thanks for doing that story, Maya. I was just telling our crew just before you arrived that I had a story that I hadn't quite had time to research that was really interesting, and you just got it there, so that was great. That was the one. Thanks, Thanks for doing that one. Last week, Scott Pruitt, head of the EPA, announced a rollback of the fuel standards set in place by the Obama administration. Aimed at cutting tailpipe emissions of carbon dioxide, a major contributor to global warming. He also demanded that California, which has vowed to stick to its own stricter standards, fall in line and follow Washington's lead. What followed California's lead? Well, 12 other coastal states, that's who, followed California to have tougher standards, which we've all had since 2010. Pruitt went beyond the requests even made by the auto industry, causing the auto industry to criticize the announcement, saying it would cause chaos in the markets. The federal rules would require automakers to nearly double the average fuel economy of new cars and trucks to 54.5 miles per gallon by the year 2025. If fully implemented, they would cut oil consumption by about 12 billion barrels over the lifetime of all cars affected by the regulations and reduce carbon dioxide pollution by about 6 billion tons. That, according to the EPA's projections. Pruitt's announcement comes amidst allegations he accepted a gift of free rent on a D.C. condominium from an oil lobbyist, prompting calls for his resignation and an investigation. There are some 500,000 pieces of junk in Earth's orbit. The first experiment designed to capture this space debris has just arrived at the International Space Station aboard SpaceX's Dragon cargo capsule. 
The removed debris experiment is a part of an $18 million European Union-funded project led by the University of Surrey in the UK. About the size of a washing machine, the device weighs 220 pounds and is equipped with three technologies that could prove useful to future cleanup missions. A harpoon, a net, and a drag sail. <laughs> Due to laws that prevent the manipulation of space objects, the team brought their own junk to release and test on. The net will be tested later this year and will be shot at objects that will deorbit on their own. Next, the harpoon will be fired into a fixed target attached to the station, and finally, the drag sail will be deployed to bring the device back to Earth. The removed debris experiment arrived the same week a Chinese satellite made headlines for plummeting into the South Pacific. Amazing story. I didn't even know they regulated stuff in space, like what you could do to things. We're allowed to release them but not pick them up yet. There's some work to be done on cleaning up space. Yeah, kind of ridiculous. It seems yeah. a little silly. Uh, I like the, the one analogy, though, that it's the size of a washing machine <laughs> because that makes you think of cleaning things, you know. Well, speaking of uh, size of stuff in space, uh, it is important because uh, if, say, future spacewalks of astronauts, if a paint flake, so much as a paint flake hits the astronaut at the typical high speeds in orbit, you know, relative to the speed of the astronaut, say, several thousand miles an hour, could puncture the astronaut's spacesuit, the astronaut would basically die instantly. And so all this stuff floating around out there is, is a real hazard uh, for a future space-faring society. So it's a good thing to try to figure out how to sweep it up. Thank goodness we're recovering some of those things we're shooting up into the planet now. We're up into the and that's a private company, right? <clears throat> yes. Yes. Interesting. Well, it's a European Union-funded project. Oh, okay. I missed that part. Great. Well, thank you for that story. <clears throat> You're listening to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and it's time to introduce our guest for the hour. On board with us here in the studio at Planet Watch, <clears throat> having brought us, the reason I'm <coughs> excuse me, clearing my throat is I'm overwhelmed by the gift of food that Patricia Rain has brought us, and I'll ask her more what's in it in just a minute. <laughs> I should have done that before I started deliciously eating it. Patricia Rain is someone many people, including herself, call the Vanilla Queen. She is a writer, author, anthropologist, culinary <laughs> professional, and champion of smallholder tropical farmers who grow coffee, chocolate, and vanilla. She has lived or spent significant time in Mexico, Central America, as well as Northern California, and she settled in Santa Cruz, where this program originates, 30 years ago. And I actually met her probably... 50 years ago when we lived in the same small community of Canyon, California, which is a little teeny place, East Bay area. So thank you for being with us here on Planet Watch. And if you don't mind, before I turn up your mic, grab it and bring it much closer to you. There you go. <clears throat> All right. Now we can hear you. Thank Welcome you. Welcome to the program. <laughs> thank you. Glad to have you on board. Well, coffee, chocolate, and vanilla just about <clears throat> wraps it up, doesn't it? If we can't have those, uh, we might as well just pack it up and move to another planet. <laughs> I, I concur. <laughs> Even though I don't drink coffee anymore, I, I want my friends who do to be happy. Yeah, well, if I tell people that uh, vanilla is an endangered crop, they all say, oh, that's too bad, no ice cream. But if you say coffee, there's going to be at least 58% by 2050. Uh, less 
uh, people absolutely bolt forward and say, no. It's a wake-up call. Muti- literally. Mutiny. <laughs> Mutiny on the planet. And oh, yeah. ditto with chocolate, of course. Yeah. Not worth living. So why are all these crops, what, what do they have in common? And why are they all endangered in this way? Why, how are we going to lose 50% of coffee. I know. <laughs> that was a shock for me, but it made me realize once again how similar these three crops are. Uh, coffee comes from Ethiopia originally, though the majority of coffee is grown here in the, quote, New World, the Americas. Whereas Cacao and vanilla are both foods of the Americas, but the majority is grown in Africa. So real commentary on early global exchange. All three do best growing as uh, agroforestry in, in traditional forest or even recovered forest. Uh, Vanilla is an epiphyte that uses both roots to the ground, but just on top, as well as from the air. Cacao is a tree, not a very tall tree, that produces the pods year-round, but there are two major seasons. And coffee is grown on a large bush that gets to the size almost of a tree and has a yearly harvest. All three are preferably grown in the shade with enough light to give them color and oomph, but not direct light. The problem we're facing at this point is that as the climate has warmed, the coffee, which is typically grown at a fair altitude, is running out of space. When I was in uh, Costa Rica a couple of years ago, I sat next to a man on the airplane who asked me if I was a tourist, and I said, well, sort of, but I'm also uh, here to speak at a conference, and he asked me about what, and I told him about vanilla, and he started asking all kinds of very intelligent questions, and I said, what do you grow? And he said, I just tore up. 5,000 acres of coffee in the Alajuela province, which is Costa Rica's primary growing area, because it cost him more money to treat those plants for diseases than he was able to make in sales. So what you were saying is that um, it's getting too hot for the elevation it's being grown at, and there's nowhere to go up from there. Not easily. You can go up the sides of volcanoes like Guatemala, where they're grown, El Salvador. But there's finite space. And as you get closer to the top, there's less space for the coffee to grow. That and encroaching on uh, land is a big issue. As the population expands, farmers and even those few people who are left who are able to be pastoralists are running out of places Mm -hmm. to either grow crops or place their herds. And as that occurs, of course, they take more land. And just to be clear, uh, all three of these plants, vanilla, cacao and uh, coffee uh, are grown 
almost entirely in the tropics except for some experiments, which maybe we can talk about later, like in the Netherlands and greenhouses. But they need the tropics, but even so, I mean, everybody knows the tropics are hot, but it's getting too hot for these plants now. Is that right? And there's only so many mountainous places in the tropics, is what you're saying, except volcanoes. Well, one of the biggest diseases that strikes all three of these crops are fungal diseases. And it happens whether if it's too hot but humid or if rain, rain increasingly is coming as deluge or nothing. And so that is a, is a significant issue. But uh, I know in vanilla, which is often grown fairly closely together, on trees. It, it's a, a climbing vine, so it needs what's called a tutor, and a tutor can be something as simple as a cement uh, post, or it can be a tree, but something that will hold it up. And if it starts getting uh, one of the fungal diseases, it can take out an entire plantation in two weeks. That is fast, just and, two weeks. Yeah, My and it will destroy the land for a number of years until the year uh, the land has entirely been rehabilitated. So the, the fungal is, uh, issues for these plants is very serious. You know, we haven't heard Starbucks speaking out on this, and yet their entire empire all over the world is based on having product like coffee and chocolate to sell. You you would think some of these big companies whose whole world revolves around, you know, one product would be speaking more eloquently and forcefully about the issue. I don't, I don't know what they would say if they spoke, but... Um, and, and Maya, you work at a coffee shop, don't you? I was just curious about Not that. Not quite. I used to work at a little cafe. We didn't. We worked next to the Pacific Roasting Company. Um, okay. We used your vanilla, actually, but we didn't sell coffee. Okay. I was just going to ask you if you could imagine what it would be like for the people who drink coffee um, in your world to suddenly be without it. What, would there my, be a rebellion? My father and my mother, as long as I can remember, always had a coffee mug attached to their hands like all day long. So <laughs> I cannot, yeah. you couldn't speak to my mom until she had her coffee. And my dad literally had a cup of coffee in his hand all day. Um, I could not imagine what some people would do without it. People who drink it, who are regular coffee drinkers, they're really... Addicted? Addicted, yeah. <laughs> they get it. grumpy if they don't have it. I don't know what you call <laughs> they that. They get headaches if they don't have I it. Just ha- I just have to throw in my own personal thing here. For years, I never drank coffee, even though I liked it. You know, I would drink it once in a while because I like it. Uh, and I prided myself on the fact that I had more energy <laughs> without coffee than all these people who seemed to need the coffee to get jump-started in the morning. But lately, I've been drinking it more regularly just because I like it, because it's fun to drink. But uh, I'm not addicted yet, I don't think. You'll know when you stop drinking if you get a headache. (laughs) Well, there is a hope. Uh, Mars family, I actually have a lot of respect for what they do. It's not a transparent family, not a transparent company. But when things were warming up, first, they created a hybridized coffee plant that could be grown in the sun, but they purposely didn't patent it so that farmers could use it where it was applicable for them. Hershey's also created a plant. They patented theirs. But recently, 
Mars has put $2 million into funding scientists to work on the issues of cacao. Uh, recently, Hershey's came out with the perfect sound bites of we're going to put half a million dollars into making sure our farmers keep going. And I think this is true for coffee. I haven't seen any specific information recently. But the people that really help the coffee industry, which with cacao are traded on the world commodities market, so they all have major associations. They're looking, and they're thinking, and they're concerned. I'm sure they're looking ahead. What, what I often wonder about is if we just keep genetically modifying our own crops to withstand more hot and more drought, but we don't fix the underlying problem. We're not really solving the issue. I mean, we're just trying to adapt certain crops that we like. It's sort of a scattershot approach to something bigger. But I mean, I understand why if you were a coffee grower, you would want those adapted plants, right? You were trying to survive. That's just because we're in a capitalist system. That's what you do. But it doesn't solve the problem we're continuing to create by spewing carbon dioxide into the environment. But this is why I've been very interested in getting a collaborative conversation going between scientists and farmers. And it really, I, I thought originally about doing a mobile app, but in Africa, the majority of farmers don't have smartphones. They have the cheap phones that you buy minutes for, and that's how they're used. Nevertheless, an awful lot of the farmers do go to the internet when they can. So having an internet-based uh, site where farmers can say, wow, I just found a new way of drying my vanilla beans that seems to work despite the rain, other farmers can find out. And for those who live up country, which lots of farmers, and I should interject right here that most of these three, uh, the growers of these three crops are smallholder farmers, which means an acre or less. Some farmers do have a couple of acres or maybe they're in a co-op and they collectively share larger plots of land. But these are not big plantations as we see them. Yeah, in the, uh, Brazil, they have huge coffee plantations, but those are not the norm. But if the people that have access to the information, and this includes the people that help them sell their crops to the market. If we could get a conversation going with all three crops, we have a whole lot better an opportunity for making a big difference. If you've just joined us, we're here on Planet Watch talking to Patricia Rain, the vanilla queen, who has not only brought us some beautiful um, works of art made out of vanilla beans that smell. I wish you could smell what these smell like because it's just transportive. Um, you know, often vanilla is something we experience in a processed way through food, but when you smell it directly from the bean, there's really nothing 
quite like it. I don't know if you guys got it. I guess this is the, this is made from the pods. Correct. So it's, it's like a correct. Uh, you know, a trophy. Uh, what, what do they call these things? Not yeah, gourds. Trophy. Uh, trophy bucket or whatever yeah. made out of the pods, the long pods of vanilla. Hold it up to the camera, and people will yeah, yeah. will see what it. Hold it still. There you go. And and by the way, she, uh, Patricia brought us in this concoction that she's going to have to describe and you know we'll we'll post some of it on the web for you folks to try yeah. but she does have her own website uh, by the way vanillaqueen.com and that name came from one of the many farmers all over the world who whom she has helped and coached and networked together over the years and one of them finally said you are our queen uh, and the the vanilla queen thing just stuck so go to vanillaqueen.com and find out more about everything we're talking about today maybe they any? should have made a crown out of vanilla pods for you i have one ah. and i almost brought it <laughs> it has Good shrunk idea. a little bit too much now because over time they, they do shrink but you betcha i've got a crown okay. every queen must have a crown <laughs> absolutely and if there's ever anything um that who could not like it's it's vanilla sometimes you hear you know oh that's just a vanilla kind of a thing and it's used as a adjective for plain but i disagree it's subtle but it's certainly not plain and hang on uh, i just smelling this thing reminds me we talked about how some trees you know they get some ingredients in artificial vanilla or you know partially naturally flavored vanilla from trees from wood pulp and in particular in the sierra in the mountains here in california you go up to high altitudes to the jeffrey pines it's kind of well known that if you uh sniff the bark of a Jeffrey pine, which is usually at altitudes above five or 6,000 feet, you get this strong vanilla scent. And the ponderosa pines, too, although some people say the ponderosa pines smell more like butterscotch, but of course there's some overlap there. So, so um, one of the articles you sent me, Patricia Rain, was one about Madagascar, which is a place there's a lot of vanilla grown. And it, it sounds like there's an interesting confluence of problems there that's causing that vanilla crop to be going through the roof price-wise. Can you describe uh, some of what was reported in that Guardian article? And we can post it also on Facebook if people want to read it. It's quite interesting. I, I found it interesting both because I love vanilla and because I also play instruments that have rosewood in them, which is now banned as an import, I understand, because... And you can't even sometimes bring rosewood guitars without a certificate now around... I didn't know that. That's interesting. It's a new thing. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, vanilla is a very opaque industry in general. It is not traded on the world commodities market because practically from the beginning of its popularity in the late 19th century, it started having imitations made. And when prices would get too high, and they certainly were high in the early 20th century, they were, uh, people would turn to these imitations. And some of the imitations were, in fact, made with ponderosa pine. However, over time, there's kind of two schools. Some people want the, only the pure vanilla, and that is growing with the awareness of wanting products that are sourced carefully and humanely and that are clean. And then there's the other camp that says, well, let's get it as cheaply as we can. 
So about every 10 years, there's a crisis in the vanilla industry. It's often triggered by a major cyclone. That usually is coupled with vanilla prices being extremely low. So the farmers have torn up their crop of vanilla and maybe they're growing just coffee or cacao now along with their other crops because they need one of those luxury crops to go from barely surviving to almost thriving. So what has happened uh, at the beginning of this century, we had a major crisis that lasted about four years caused by two major cyclones following very low prices. This time, it's much more a man-made problem. And what's happened is, and according to the Mail and Guardian, which is one of South Africa's best uh, news releases, is that the rosewood in Madagascar forests, primarily the national preserves, are being harvested and sold for the Chinese to make beautiful rosewood furniture for the new middle and upper classes. But when it's being sold, which is very illegal, the money has to be laundered. So in 2015, there was a major shortage of vanilla beans triggered by low prices for a long time and poor pollination, which could be related over time to the changing climate because Madagascar had a four-year drought and that was part of the drought period. So the multinationals who are involved in Madagascar and are high up in the government allegedly went into various vanilla growing regions and offered top dollar for the beans, outbid everybody. And then when the vanilla beans finally came to market and were ready, they held them off the market to force the prices up. What were they going for at the height, height of it? Well, they still are going. Per ounce. Per, uh, per pound. Per pound. That's always hard. I'm thinking kilos. Kilos are 2.2 pounds, I'm going to tell you, in kilos. They are going for anywhere between five and $600 per kilo at this point. Now, let's say you're an importer and you're buying a ton of vanilla beans at that price. By the time you get them through the airport fees, the customs fees, the agent's fees, and the possibility of some bad beans, the price tag is more like $700 a kilo, which put into imaginable volume is a gallon of vanilla extract currently costs $585 or more. Wow. So that's going to drive the price of ice cream up. Everything. Everything. Anything that has vanilla. Well, that has pure vanilla. Yeah. That has pure vanilla, you betcha. Mm -hmm. But what we're hopeful for is that at some point, these prices aren't going to be tenable. In the meantime, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, East Africa, and possibly even India, 
which has grown vanilla in the past and tears it up when the prices aren't great, uh, are coming back into the market really quickly. So they're the big buyers. And the reason there is a shortage is nobody wants to be stuck with several tons of vanilla that cost them $700 a kilo to have the prices collapse to $50 a kilo. So it's a real boom-bust kind of it a, is. A product. It and it's, it's acting very similarly to the drug trade. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of farmers are being killed and small-level middlemen because it's so valuable. So, so I also read that um, some of them not only are getting killed, but their crops are being stolen, so they're harvesting the vanilla early when it's not ready yet. So, This has been typical for years, and in fact, one of the interesting things I didn't think to bring some in for you to see today, but when prices go up above $150 a kilo, they start tattooing the beans in Madagascar, and each farmer or plantation puts either their initials or a design on the beans. So if they're stolen, they have some sort of recourse. Like branding your cattle. It is. <laughs> it really is. Amazing. Let me, let me ask uh, the murders of the farmers. How um, We're talking about the vanilla beans being stolen. Uh, and you know some of these uh, thieves now are so brazen, they, they will just serve notice and say, we're coming tonight. Give us what we want. Uh, they're intimidating the farmers. But... Okay, so there's thievery and ripping off their fields, but they're being stolen. I mean, the uh, farmers are being killed because they're trying to prevent the theft, or is it some more sinister thing having to do with the money laundering and the racket? Well, I'm going to tell you a quick story from Mexico, because one of the people that I source vanilla from is one of the few survivors of the last big massacre in Mexico. A couple of guys came from the state of Oaxaca to work during the season of harvesting, curing, and drying the beans and bundling them for sale. So when the market was ready, they were aware. And the owner of the plantation had gone to town, as far as the growers knew, ostensibly to get paid and bring the money back. He was ambushed on the way home and murdered, as were three of the family members. And this one young man who had just started working in the vanilla industry, the others were hacked to death with machetes, and he was pretty badly cut up. Uh, The two men that did the nasty work fled immediately to Oaxaca, never to be seen again, of course. And the bank demanded to be paid for the lost cash that they had invested when the plants were planted and the crop was started that year. My friend amazingly decided to keep on in the industry regardless. So it can be over money, it can be over getting the beans for resale. It's uh, 
just like drugs. Wow. Like, well, and it is, you know, when we go to coffee, in a way, it is a drug, and people uh -huh. are willing to pay anything, probably, in this part of the world to keep being able to drink it. So uh, I just wanted to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Patricia Rain, the Vanilla Queen, and we're talking about coffee, chocolate, and vanilla and how they're grown in other parts of the world for consumption mostly in the affluent world we're in. And before I go to Joe's question, I just want to ask you, What's our responsibility as consumers of this, of these three products? What can we do about the problems you're describing that are happening in other parts of the world in the tropics? Look for companies that what I call eco-humane practices. And I say this because no smallholder growers, unless they're part of a cooperative or collective or sponsored by someone have the money to be able to be certified organic or certified fair trade. In the case of vanilla, most vanilla is grown organically. Most coffee and cacao are also grown organically by the smallholder growers, and they're the principal growers. The bigger issue is fair trade, and it costs money for the growers to be able to get fair trade certification. And as I mentioned before, also organic. I am not certified for fair trade or organic because I am a small company. And it means that I have to have a business site that has storage facilities for keeping certified organic vanilla separate from, quote, conventional vanilla and same deal with fair trade so i somebody i didn't make this term up but i wish i could think of her name but i thought it was very applicable which is ecologically sound growing practices and humane prices and that is critical to me in my work i want to make sure that the growers are able to survive. Because if they can't sell these crops, and if we lose these crops, where are all these people going to go? And what are we going to do about coffee, vanilla, and chocolate as well? I mean, those are, one's a real problem, and the other is we'd probably survive. We just, our lives would be less rich, but we would survive, and they might not. So it's, it's really not the same question. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like your suggestion of when you can, buy fair trade and buy organic. And I was wondering why we can't just put a nickel on every cup of coffee to help these small farmers go fair trade and go organic. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? If I was president of everything, that's pass 60, a new rule. That's the $64 question or the nickel question. Uh, we haven't given out our email address yet, but you can reach our guest and us uh, during this show and, you know, after radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Uh, we do I have a we question. we actually have something from Tommy one of the listeners out there. Yeah, I was... Hi, Patricia. Hi. I was just wondering if as those places that grow the those products currently become... Uninhabitable for, uninhabitable for those products. I was wondering if maybe new places could open up maybe closer to where we are and we could get those products from a closer, closer source. Well, we already do get coffee from Central America. 
And the problem is, it's not just the tropics. It's the tropics that have enough moisture that we're dealing with. So we have vast lands that are desert or are likely to become desert over the next 50 to 75 years. But the second problem is all three of these crops are extraordinarily labor-intensive. And although it's grown in Hawaii and could be grown in Florida, I'm talking specifically about vanilla here, but cacao would apply too. It's so expensive to grow that it would just become prohibitively expensive to purchase. Now, right now in the Netherlands, because the prices are so high and probably will be very high as we lose places for them to grow, they can be grown in greenhouse environments. Now, in Tahiti currently, it's not cooling off enough in the evenings to trigger full floral bloom. Uh, the orchid, it's an orchid. It has a one-day uh, flowering for each of the orchids. If they aren't uh, hand-pollinated within a five-hour period, they die. So you, that's just the beginning of how labor-intensive wow. they are. And they have to be hand-pollinated there because the only bees that do the pollinating are in Central America, right? Well, yes and no. The problem is even with the bees, there aren't enough bees. Even originally, only part of the crop got harvest, uh, came to being to bees because the flowers, uh, the bees had to fly from plant to plant. But what they've done in Tahiti because of this is put shade cloth over the vines which are grown on metal stanchions. Now, friends of mine grow in North tropical North Queensland, Australia. They also use shade cloth, but they use a lightweight shade cloth that can be taken down before a cyclone strikes. And what they do is they developed a ratchet system to lower the vines down when a cyclone is due and the uh, uh, vines lie on the ground. And although they get battered some, the beans don't fall off and the vines survive. So I've been coaching people that I know who are growing in an ecoforestry environment, which means a tree cover, canopy, and the various different types of plants all planted together because the plants help each other synergistically. So it's really common, for instance, to see vanilla growing next to uh, pineapples or bananas or cacao trees being the hosts for holding vanilla vines. <laughs> There's all sorts of ways to do this. Well, that's great work, Patricia, and thank you for that. And I'd say God save the vanilla queen. <laughs> <laughs> and God save their crops as well in, in yes. these various places. And maybe more than God needs to be evoked here. It's humans who have created these crops in the first places, and we probably need to figure our way out of the problems we, we've created as a result of the other things that are happening on our planet. Um, if you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. There's still time to ask 
Patricia Rain, the Vanilla Queen, a question, if you have one, and you can email and us or you can write to our Facebook page and ask a question. And our email is... RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com. And, you know, Patricia has a story to tell us about how she got into vanilla in the first place. And it has a connection to Rachel, I believe, uh, my co-host Rachel. I know. I was thinking about that today. It's a very small world. When I had left Canyon, but and was actually living in San Gregorio at the time, when Rachel Ann's father, who was a wonderful man... This would have been his 90th birthday today. Oh, how wonderful. Let's dedicate this show to Jerry Absolutely. He would have been 90 today. Jerry was a larger-than-life, very colorful, very funny man who prided himself on his gorilla outfit that he would put on (laughs) periodically. He he wore it for his 70th birthday. I remember that. I remember that, too. (laughs) And he had always had these marvelous ideas. Some worked, some of them <laughs> didn't work so well. Yes, the tilapia tank yes. in the backyard, not so much. <laughs> but turned it into a hot tub. <laughs> so Jerry approached would have liked it. <laughs> Jerry approached me and said, Hey, they grow vanilla in Bali. And these people I know are importing clothes from Bali, so should we be importing vanilla? But, you know, since you wrote the Artichoke Cookbook, which had come out in 1985, why don't you think about writing a book about vanilla? And here's a lead to somebody at McCormick. So I thought, why not? So I called Hank Kaysner, who worked at McCormick, McCormick pardon me, sourcing both vanilla and all the other primary spices that they carried from the tropics. So Hank and I had a wonderful conversation, and he said, look, you don't want to get into the importing business. It's extremely complex. But if you want to write a book about vanilla, we will put the pictures for you in your book. And as it turned out, they bought over 3,000 copies. And when I finally got to the vanilla growing region in 94, I discovered that I was a celebrity in the town because Hank Kaysner had brought these books to Papantla. Nobody could read it because it was in English, but the pictures McCormick had put in was of many of the people in the town. And I was welcomed in as their very own celebrity. (laughs) Something I didn't expect when I got off the bus. A true vanilla queen. That's right. And (laughs) I was happy that you put my dad's uh, poached pears in raspberry sauce with vanilla. So if you want to go check out her first book, Jerry Goodman's Poached Pears with Wine. In fact, you know what? I'll post it up on my site. Okay. I'll make it, and we'll have to get together, and you can have it. Okay. <laughs> oh, you're speaking of which, what is this stuff that you fed us here, which maybe there's a little more of for after, after the show? <laughs> you can take your spoon and lick out the container. I was doing that. It was so good. And yeah. I don't even eat dairy. It was some kind of meringue and yeah, strawberries this, and raspberries. This is a very funny recipe that I learned about in 2014 when I spoke at the first ever Real Vanilla Day in 
in Devon, uh, hosted and inspired by my friend Janet Sawyer, who has Little Pod, which is kind of a sister company because we both have the same ethics. And I often send her uh, people from the UK who ask if we'll send it to them. I said, buy it closer, save money. So we had a dinner party at Bickley Castle where this event was held. And on the menu was Eaton Mess. E-T-O-N, as in Eaton College. So we were eating some Eaton mess. Exactly. And it's it's a baked meringue mixed with, whipping, in English parlance, a double cream or heavy whipped cream. They don't use vanilla. I certainly do. And traditionally strawberries. But, of course, like most recipes, there's always a riff. And in my case, I added our local Pelican uh, Ranch Winery's raspberry wine with vanilla beans in it from me, of course, and uh, raspberries, too. So you mix it all up and serve it, and I will have the recipe posted tomorrow morning. I can't have the poached pears quite that quickly, but the eaten mess will be up. <laughs> and by the way, if you use bananas instead, then it becomes, oh no, I've forgotten the name, another, another college's mess. That, it's in the story on the eaten mess. We'll, we'll eat it, whatever it is. Even so go to vanillaqueen.com. You know, I wanted it's to make sure to get to a, a short thing and a longer thing. Uh, a really fun fact that uh, Patricia shared with me on the phone the other day was that apparently part of our attraction to vanilla has something to do with the fact that mother's milk has some kind of something related to natural vanilla in it. Can you tell us what that, uh, what that was again? Well, I don't know what which of the chemicals it is. But there is some chemical in mother's milk that <clears throat> might, I mean, it, since there's vanillin in so many other plants, it's possible that there's a component, vanillin-like component in mother's milk. And this goes beyond humans because animals are very attracted to the smell of vanilla. So it's in the aroma. Mm. And we're hardwired to be drawn to vanilla. Isn't that interesting? And don't they make fake vanilla? Um, it's made out of wood well, pulp or something? Well, no, there's, there's a... Well, there was. Yeah. Uh, and vanillin is now being drawn out of a number of different plants because it's in a lot of plants. Uh, but it's treated differently now from how it used to be. The wood pulp started in the 20s when a river in Canada was becoming heavily polluted next to a paper plant. And they realized they had to do something. And someone said, hey, we can make synthetic vanillin out of it. So they cleaned up the river and made synthetic vanillin. But what, uh, and in fact, I always swore I'd never sell this, but I am. Because the farmers are making a lot of money right now. But an awful lot of artisan producers of beer, baked goods, wines, uh, ice creams, can't afford to pay $600 a gallon for vanilla. So I am selling a product 
that is made with vanillin, natural vanillin, pulled from plants other than vanilla beans, mixed with pure vanilla extract, and made into what is called, because of the standard of identity rules, a natural vanilla flavor and a natural vanilla paste. And my suggestion to the higher-end artisan producers is that they mix it with equal parts of our vanilla uh, extract because then they get all the notes of the vanilla as well as sort of a filler that extends the life of the pure by having some of the natural in it. And it tastes very good, I have to say. And I'll carry it until the farmers aren't making money again. Right. And Patricia, switching gears just a little bit for a couple of minutes, um, you mentioned something that I realized is a great source of hope, namely people who become aware of problems and start working hard on them. And the women of the world, you are fundamentally involved in this wonderful organization called the Global Women's Leadership Network. Can you tell us briefly what that is? And, and they're going to have a major intensive that all you strong women out there, uh, especially those around here, because it's going to be right over the hill in Santa Clara University in September. You can apply to network with great women from all over the world. But anyway, uh, they're, uh, some of these people are f some of these farmers, for instance, right? Tell us what you know about that. I was in the inaugural class of the JWLN, which was held in 2005, and it's an intensive training program to give the women that attend additional resources and skills to be able to do the work they're doing more efficiently. And it's specifically geared for women who work with women, girls, or women and girls. And we have a large percentage relative to the number of women who've gone through the training, which is about 220, maybe more, uh, that are from Africa. And I, have, because I work with farmers, and because in the developing world, almost 80% of the crops are grown by women, I was extremely interested in seeing more women leaders who work with farmers in some capacity get this training. So in 2013, I raised enough money to get to Africa myself and get six women from Uganda to Kenya, where 20 of us in uh, the Fulham number of Kenyans and one woman from Mozambique met in the Great Rift Valley and started the Regional Alliance of East and South African Women Leaders. And the reason I did this is that a lot of the women could not get visas because they didn't earn enough to pass the stringent rules for coming to our country. So now there have been three trainings in East Africa since that time. We do have a training once a year. Go to G wln.org and if you work with women or women and girls you probably qualify to come 
Well, thank you, Patricia. It's really super inspiring story and amazing um, journey you've been on. And you're also a cancer survivor. So you're just one of these people we can all look to with hope and admiration that in the years to come, we can all uh, hold ourselves to higher standards as we age. So thank you for being here and being so active in your life and has sharing with us the future, some of it hopeful, some of it alarming, about coffee, chocolate, and vanilla. Thank you, the Vanilla Queen, also for your gift of this delicious dessert you brought us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great having you here. And uh, so uh, just a couple of minutes worth of oddball stuff here. Um, you got to get up early and see uh, this spectacular sight in the sky for the next week. Uh, last week, it was really amazing. This week, it's still pretty good. Uh, you've got these two eyes staring at you out of the southeast sky in the pre-dawn. You get up at like 5 a.m., 5.30, even 6. It's Mars and Saturn, like right next to each other. So check that out. And, uh, well, let's see. Do we have another one minute? Yeah, okay. I've got a riddle for you. Uh, this week, another revelation came from the fossil fuel industry. ExxonMobil had already been busted for having known many decades ago about the horrible impact of peddling oil to us oil-addicted people. Uh, now, another oil major has been busted for having known many decades ago. And the way you can find this company's name is right down the numbers. 710 space 77345 and then turn it upside down and you will see the name of this company spelled out. <laughs> uh, some kind of a vanilla treat for the first listener out there in cyberspace uh -huh. who emails us the anything. answer. <laughs> but anyway, write them in the style of baseball scoreboard numbers. You know how, where you have seven lines, vertical and horizontal. And so it's 710-77345. Keep an eye on the sky. You've been this listening to Planet Watch with Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. And we'll have the answer to that riddle and the one from last week next week. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening.